Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 18, Chapter 47, Queer European Manners We spent a few pleasant, restful days at Geneva, that delightful city where accurate timepieces are made for all the rest of the world, but whose own clocks never give the correct time of day by anything other than an accident. Geneva is filled with pretty shops, and the shops are filled with the most enticing gym crackery. But if one enters one of these places, he is at once pounced upon and followed up and so persecuted by this or that or the other thing that he is grateful to get out of there again and is not at all apt to repeat the experiment. The shopkeepers of the smaller sort in Geneva are as troublesome and persistent as are the salesmen of that monster hive in Paris, the Grand Magazine de Louvre, an establishment where ill-mannered, pestering, pursuing, and insistence have been reduced to a science. In Geneva, prices in the smaller shops are very elastic. That is another bad feature. I was looking in at a window at a very pretty string of beads suitable for a child. I was only admiring them. I had no use for them. I hardly ever wear beads. The shopwoman came over and offered them to me for 35 francs. I said it was cheap, but I did not need them. Ah, but, monsieur, they are so beautiful. I confessed it, but said that they were not suitable for one of my age and simplicity of character. She darted in and brought them out and tried to force them into my hands saying, Ah, but only see how lovely they are. Surely monsieur will take them. Monsieur shall have them for thirty francs. There, I have said it. It is a loss, but one must leave. Huh? I dropped my hands and tried to move her to respect my unprotected situation. But no, she dangled the beads in the sun before my face, exclaiming, Oh, monsieur cannot resist them. She hung them on my coat button, folded her hands resignedly, and said, Gone! And for thirty francs, the lovely things! It is incredible! But the good God will sanctify the sacrifice to me! I removed them gently and returned them and walked away, shaking my head and smiling a smile of silly embarrassment, while the passers-by halted to observe. The woman leaned out the door and shook her beads and screamed after me, Monsieur, you shall have them for twenty-eight. I shook my head. Twenty-seven, it is a cruel loss. It is ruined, but take them, only take them. I still retreated, still shaking my head. Mon Dieu, they shall even go for twenty-six. There I have said it, twenty-six, come. I wagged another negative. A nurse and a little English girl had been near me and were following me now. The shopwoman ran to the nurse and thrust the beads into her hands and said, Monsieur shall have them for twenty-five. Take them to the hotel. He shall send me the money tomorrow, next day, whenever he likes. And then to the child, When thy father sends me the money, come thou also, my angel. And thou shalt have something also pretty. I was thus providentially saved. The nurse refused the beads squarely and firmly, and that ended the matter.
The sites of Geneva are not numerous. I made one attempt to hunt up the houses once inhabited by those two disagreeable people, Rousseau and Calvin, but I had no success. Then I concluded to go home. I found it easier to propose to do that than to actually do it, for that town is a bewildering place. I got lost in a tangle of narrow and crooked streets and stayed lost for an hour or two. Finally, I found a street which looked somewhat familiar and said to myself, All right, now I must be near my hotel, I judge. But I was wrong. This was Hell Street. Presently, I found another place which had a familiar look and said to myself, Now I am surely near my hotel. This was another error. This was Purgatory Street. After a little while, I said, Now I've got the right place anyway. No, this is Paradise Street. Uh, I'm further from home than I was in the beginning. Those were queer names. Calvin was the author of them, likely. Hell and Purgatory fitted those two streets like a glove. But Paradise appeared to be just sarcastic. I came out on the lakefront at last, and then finally knew where I was. I was walking along before the glittering jewelry shops when I saw a curious performance. A lady passed by in a trim dandy, lounged across the walk in such an apparent carefully timed way as to bring himself exactly in front of her when she got to him. He made no offer to step out of the way. He didn't apologize. He didn't even notice her. She had to stop still and let him lounge by. I wondered if he had done that piece of brutality on purpose. He strolled to a chair and seated himself at a small table. Two or three other males were sitting at similar tables, sipping sweetened water. I waited. Presently a youth came by, and this fellow got up and served him with the same trick. Still, it did not seem possible that anyone could do such a thing deliberately. To satisfy my own curiosity, I went around the block, and sure enough, as I approached, at a good round speed, he got up and lounged lazily across my path, fouling my course exactly at the right moment to receive all my weight. This proved that his previous performances had not been accidental, but intentional. I saw that dandy's curious game played afterwards in Paris, but not for amusement. Not with a motive of any sort, indeed, but simply from a selfish indifference to other people's comfort and rights. One does not see it as frequently in Paris as he might expect to, for there are laws there that say, in effect, it is the business of the weak to get out of the way of the strong. We fine a cabman if he runs over a citizen. Paris fines the citizen for being run over. At least so everybody says. But I saw something that caused me to doubt that. I saw a horseman run over an old woman one day. The police arrested him and took him away. That looked as if they meant to punish him. It will not do for me to find merit in American manners, for are they not the standing butt for the jests of critical and polished Europe? Still, I must venture to claim one little matter of superiority in our manners. A lady may traverse our streets all day, going and coming as she chooses, and she will never be molested by any man. But if a lady, unattended, walks abroad in the streets of London, even at noon, she will be pretty likely to be accosted and insulted, and not by drunken sailors, but by men who carry the look and wear the dress of gentlemen. It is maintained that these people are not gentlemen, 
but a lower sort, disguised as gentlemen. The case of Colonel Valentine Baker obstructs that argument, for a man cannot become an officer in the British Army except he hold the rank of gentleman. This person, finding himself alone in a railway compartment with an unprotected girl, well, it's an atrocious story, and doubtless the reader remembers it well. London must have been more or less accustomed to bakers, and the way of bakers, else London would have been offended and excited. Baker was imprisoned in parlor, and he could not have been more visited or more overwhelmed with attentions if he had committed six murders and then, while the gallows was being prepared, got religion after the manner of Holy Charles' peace of saintly memory. Arkansas seems a little indelicate to be trumpeting forth our own superiorities in comparisons, which are always odious, but still, Arkansas would have certainly hanged Baker. I do not say she would not have tried him first, but she would have hanged him anyway. Even the most degraded woman can walk our streets unmolested, her sex and weakness being her sufficient protection. She will encounter less polish than she would in the old world, but she will run across enough humanity to make up for it. The music of a donkey awoke us early in the morning, and we rose up and made ready for a pretty formidable walk to Italy. But the road was so level that we took the train. We lost a good deal of time by this, but it was no matter. We were not in a hurry. We were four hours going to Chambéry. The Swiss trains go upward at three miles an hour in places, but are quite safe. That aged French town of Chambéry was quaint and crooked as Heilbronn. The quiet, reposeful, reined-in little back streets made strolling very pleasant, barring the almost unbearable heat of the sun. In one of these streets, which was eight feet wide, gracefully curved and built up with small antiquated houses, I saw three fat hogs lying asleep, and a boy, also asleep, taking care of them. From queer old-fashioned windows along the curve projected boxes of bright flowers, and over the edge of one of these hung the head and shoulders of a cat asleep. The five sleeping creatures were the only living things visible in that street. There was not a sound. Absolute stillness prevailed. It was Sunday. One is not used to such dreamy Sundays on the continent. In our part of town, it was different that night. A regiment of brown and battered soldiers had arrived home from Algiers, and I judged they got thirsty on the way. They sang and drank till dawn in the pleasant open air. We left for Turin at ten the next morning by a railway which was profusely decorated with tunnels. We forgot to take a lantern along. Consequently, we missed all the scenery. Our compartment was full. A ponderous, tow-headed Swiss woman who put on many fine lady airs, but was evidently more used to washing linen than actually wearing it. She sat in a quarter seat and put her legs across into the opposite one, propping them intermediately with her upended valise. In the seat thus pirated sat two Americans, greatly incommoded by that woman's majestic coffin-clad feet. One of them begged politely to remove them, she opened her wide eyes and gave him a stare, but said nothing. 
By and by, he proffered his request again with great respectfulness. She said in good English and in a deeply offended tone that she had paid her passage and was not going to be bullied out of her rights by ill-bred foreigners, even if she was alone and unprotected. I have my rights also, madam. My ticket entitles me to a seat, but you are occupying half of it. I will not talk to you, sir. What right do you have to speak to me? I do not know you. One would know you came from a land where there are no gentlemen. No gentleman would treat a lady as you have treated me. I come from a region where a lady would hardly give me the same provocation. You have insulted me, sir. You have intimated I am not a lady, and I hope I am not one after the pattern of your country. I beg that you will give yourself no alarm on that head, madam. But at the same time, I must insist, always respectfully, that you let me have my seat. Here, the fragile laundress burst into tears and sobs. I have never been so insulted before. Never, never. It is shameful. It is brutal. It is base to bully and abuse an unprotected lady who has lost the use of her limbs and cannot put her feet to the floor without agony. Well, good heavens, madam, why didn't you say that in the first place? I offer a thousand pardons, and I offer them most sincerely. I did not know, I could not know anything was the matter. You are most welcome to the seat, and would have been from the first if I had known. I'm truly sorry it all happened, I do assure you. But he couldn't get a word of forgiveness out of her. She simply sobbed and sniffed in a subdued but wholly unappeasable way for two hours, meantime crowding the man more than ever with her undertaker furniture and paying no sort of attention to his frequent and humble little efforts to do something for her comfort. Then the train halted at the Italian line, and she hopped up and marched out of the car with as firm a leg as any washerwoman of all of her tribe. And how sick I was to see how she had fooled me. Turin is a very fine city. In the matter of roominess, it transcends anything that was ever dreamed of before, I fancy. It sits in the midst of a vast dead level, and one is obliged to imagine that land may be had for the asking, and no taxes to pay, so lavishly do they use it. The streets are extravagantly wide. The paved squares are prodigious, the houses huge and handsome, and compacted into uniform blocks that stretch away as straight as an arrow into the distance. The sidewalks are about as wide as an ordinary European street, and are covered over with a double arcade supported on great stone piers or columns. One walks from one end to the other of these spacious streets under shelter at all times and all his course is lined with the prettiest of shops and the most inviting of dining houses. There is a wide and lengthy court, glittering with the most wickedly enticing shops, which is roofed with glass, high aloft overhead, and paved with soft-toned marbles laid in graceful figures. And at night, when the place is brilliant with gas and populous with a sauntering and chatting and laughing multitude of pleasure-seekers, it is a spectacle worth seeing. Everything is on a large scale. 
the public buildings, for instance. And they architecturally are imposing, too, as well as large. The big squares have big bronze monuments in them. At the hotel, they gave us rooms that were alarming for size and a parlor to match. It was well that the weather required no fire in the parlor, for I think one might as well have tried to warm a park up. The place would have a warm look, though, in any weather, for the window curtains were of red silk damask, and the walls were covered with the same fire-hued goods. So also were the four sofas and the brigade of chairs. The furniture, the ornaments, the chandeliers, the carpets were all new and bright and costly. We did not need a parlor at all, but they said it belonged to the two bedrooms, and we might use it if we chose. Since it was to cost us nothing extra, we were not averse to using it, of course. Turin must surely read a good deal, for it has more bookstores to the square rod than any other town I've ever been in, and it has its own share of military folk. The Italian officers' uniforms are very much the most beautiful I have ever seen, and as a general thing, the men in them were as handsome as the clothes. They were not large men, but they had fine forms, fine features, rich olive complexions, and lustrous black eyes. For several weeks I had been culling all the information I could about Italy from tourists. The tourists were all agreed upon one thing. One must expect to be cheated at every turn by the Italians. I took an evening walk in Turin and presently came across a little Punch and Judy show in one of the great squares. Twelve or fifteen people constituted the audience. This miniature theater was not much bigger than a man's coffin stood on end. The upper part was open and displayed a tinseled parlor. A good-sized handkerchief would have answered for a drop curtain. The footlights consisted of a couple of candle ends an inch long. Various mannequins the size of dolls appeared on stage and made long speeches at each other, gesticulating a good deal, and they generally had a fight before they got through. They were worked with strings from above, and the illusion was not perfect, for one saw not only the strings, but the brawny arm that manipulated them, and the actors and actresses all talked in the same voice, too. The audience stood in front of the theater and seemed to enjoy the performance heartily. When the play was over, a youth in his shirt sleeves started around with a small copper saucer to make a collection. I did not know how much to put in, but I thought I would be guided by my predecessors. Unluckily, I only had two of these, and they did not help me much because they did not put in anything. I had no Italian money, so I put in a small Swiss coin worth about ten cents. The youth finished his collection trip and emptied the results onto the stage. He had some very animated talk with the concealed manager, then came working his way through the little crowd, seeking me out, I thought. I had a mind to slip away, but concluded I wouldn't. I would stand my ground and confront the villainy, whatever it was. The youth stood before me and held up that Swiss coin and said something. I did not understand him, but I judged he was requiring Italian money from me. The crowd gathered close to listen. I was irritated, and I said, in English, of course, I know it's Swiss, but you'll take that or nothing. I don't have anything else. He tried to put the coin in my hand and spoke again. I drew my hand away and said, No, sir, I know all about you people. You can't play any of your fraudful tricks on me. If there is a discount on that coin, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to make good. 
I noticed that some of the audience didn't pay you anything. You let them go without a word. But you come after me because you think I'm a stranger and will put up with extortion rather than have a scene? Well, you are mistaken this time, my friend. You'll take that Swiss money or you won't take nothing. The youth stood there with the coin in his fingers, nonplussed and bewildered. Of course, he had not understood a word. An English-speaking Italian spoke up and said, You are misunderstanding the boy. He does not mean any harm. He did not suppose you gave him so much money purposely, so he hurried back to return the coin, lest you might get away before you discovered your mistake. Take it. Give him a penny. That will make everything smooth again. I probably blushed then, for there was occasion. Through the interpreter, I begged the boy's pardon, but I nobly refused to take back the ten cents. I said I was accustomed to squandering large sums in that way. It was the kind of person I was. Then I retired to make a note to the effect that in Italy, persons connected with drama do not cheat. The episode with the showman reminded me of a dark chapter in my own history. I once robbed an aged and blind beggar woman of four dollars in a church. It happened this way. When I was out with the innocents abroad, the ship stopped in the Russian port of Odessa, and I went ashore with the others to view the town. I got separated from the rest and wandered around alone until late in the afternoon I entered a Greek church to see what it was like. When I was ready to leave, I observed two wrinkled old women standing stiffly upright against the inner wall near the door with their brown palms open to receive alms. I contributed to the nearer one and passed out. I had gone fifty yards, perhaps, when it occurred to me that I must remain ashore all night as I had heard that the ship's business would carry her away at four o'clock and keep her away until morning. It was a little after four now. I had come ashore with only two pieces of money, both about the same size but differing largely in value. One was a French gold piece worth four dollars, and the other was a Turkish coin worth two and a half cents. With a sudden, horrified misgiving, I put my hand in my pocket, and sure enough, I fetched out the Turkish penny. Here was a situation. A hotel would require paying advance. I had to walk the street all night and perhaps be arrested as a suspicious character. There was one way out of the difficulty. I flew back to the church and softly entered, and there the old woman stood, and in the palm of the nearest one still lay my gold piece. I was grateful. I crept close, feeling unspeakably mean. I got my Turkish penny ready and was extending a trembling hand to make the nefarious exchange when I heard a cough behind me. I jumped back as if I had been accused and stood quaking while a worshipper entered and passed up the aisle. I was there a year trying to steal that money. That is, it seemed like a year, though, of course, it must have been much less. The worshippers went and came. There were hardly ever three in the church at once, but there was always one or more. And every time I tried to commit my crime, somebody came in or somebody started out. But at last my opportunity came. For one moment there was nobody in the church but the two beggar women and me. I whipped the gold piece out of the poor old pauper's palm and dropped my Turkish penny in its place. The poor old thing murmured her thanks, and that smote me to the heart. I sped away in a guilty hurry, and even when I was a mile from the church, 
I was still glancing back every moment to see if I was being pursued. That experience has been of priceless value and benefit to me, for I resolved then that as long as I lived, I would never again rob a blind beggar woman in a church, and I have always kept my word. The most permanent lesson in morals are those which come not of booky teaching, but of experience. Chapter 48 The Beauty of Women and of Old Masters in Milan, we spent most of our time in the vast and beautiful arcade or gallery, or whatever it's called. Blocks of tall new buildings of the most sumptuous sort, rich with decoration and graced with statues. The streets between these blocks roofed over with glass at a great height. The pavements all of smooth and variegated marble, arranged in tasteful patterns. Little tables all over these marble streets people sitting on them, eating, drinking, or smoking, crowds of other people strolling by. Such is the arcade. I should like to have lived in it for the rest of my life. The windows of the sumptuous restaurant stand open, and one breakfasts there and enjoys the passing show. We wandered all over the town, enjoying whatever was going on in the streets. We took one omnibus ride, and as I did not speak Italian and could not ask the price, I held out some copper coins to the conductor. He took two. Then he went and got his tariff card and showed me he had taken only the right sum. So I made a note. Italian omnibus conductors do not cheat. Near the cathedral I saw another instance of probity. An old man was peddling dolls and toy fans. Two small American children bought fans, and one gave the old man a franc and three copper coins, and both started away. But they were called back, and the franc and one of the coppers were restored to them. Hence it is plain in Italy, parties connected with drama and omnibus and toy interests do not cheat. The stocks of goods in the shops were not extensive, generally. In the vestibule of what seemed to be a clothing store, we saw eight or ten wooden dummies grouped together, clothed in woolen business suits, and each marked with its price. One suit was marked 45 francs, $9. Harris stepped in and said he wanted a suit like that. Nothing easier. The old merchant dragged in the dummy, brushed him off with a broom, stripped him, and shipped the clothes to the hotel. He said he did not keep two suits of the same kind in stock, but manufactured a second when it was needed to reclothe the dummy. In another quarter, we found six Italians engaged in a violent quarrel. They danced fiercely about, gesticulating with their heads, their arms, their legs, their whole bodies. They would rush forward occasionally with a sudden access of passion, shake their fists in each other's faces. We lost half an hour there waiting to help court up the dead. But they finally embraced each other affectionately, and the trouble was over. The episode was interesting, but we could not have afforded all the time to it if we had known nothing was going to come of it but a reconciliation. Note made. In Italy, people who quarrel cheat the spectator. We had another disappointment after that. We approached a deeply interested crowd, and in the midst of it found a fellow wildly chattering and gesticulating over a box on the ground, which was covered with a piece of old blanket. Every little while he would bend down and take hold of the edge of the blanket with the extreme tips of his fingertips, as if to show there was no deception, chattering away all the while. 
But always, just as I was expecting to see a wonderful feat of ledger domain, he would let go of the blanket and rise to explain further. However, at last he uncovered the box and got out a spoon with a liquid in it and held it fair and frankly around for the people to see that it was all right and he was taking no advantage. His chatter became more excited than ever. I supposed he was going to set fire to the liquid and swallow it, so I was greatly wrought up and interested. I got a scent out, ready in one hand and a florin in the other, intending to give him the former if he survived and the latter if he killed himself, for his loss would be my gain in a literary way, and I was willing to pay a fair price for the item. But this impostor ended his intensely moving performance by simply adding some powder to the liquid and polishing the spoon. He held it aloft, and he could not have shown a wilder exultation if he had achieved an immortal miracle. The crowd applauded in a gratified way, and it seemed to me that history speaks the truth when it says these children of the South are easily entertained. We spent an impressive hour in the noble cathedral, where long shafts of tinted light were cleaving through the solemn dimness from the lofty windows and falling on a pillar here, a picture there, and a kneeling worshipper yonder. The organ was muttering, censers were swinging, candles were glinting on the distant altar, and robed priests were filing silently past them. The scene was one to sweep all frivolous thoughts away and steep the soul in a holy calm. A trim young American lady paused a yard or two from me, fixed her eyes on the mellow sparks flecking the far-off altar, bent her head reverently a moment, then straightened up, kicked her train into the air with her heel, caught it deftly in her hand, and marched briskly out. We visited the picture galleries and the other regulation sites of Milan, not because I wanted to write about them again, but to see if I had learned anything in twelve years. I afterwards visited the great galleries of Rome and Florence for the same purpose. I found I had learned one thing, when I wrote about the old masters before, I said the copies were better than the originals. That was a mistake of large dimensions. The old masters were still unpleasing to me, but they were truly divine contrasted with copies. The copy is to the original as the pallid, smart, inane, new waxwork group is to the vigorous, earnest, dignified group of living men and women whom it professes to duplicate. There is a mellow richness, a subdued color in the old pictures, which is to the eye what muffled and mellowed sound is to the ear. That is, the merit which is most loudly praised in the old picture, and is the one which the copy most conspicuously lacks, and which the copyist must not hope to compass. It was generally conceded by artists with whom I talked that that subdued splendor, that mellow richness is imparted to the picture by age. Then why should we worship the old master for it who didn't impart it instead of worshiping old time who did? Perhaps the picture was a clanging bell until time muffled it and sweetened it. In conversation with one artist in Venice, I asked, What is it that people see in the old masters? I have been in the Dodge's palace and saw several acres of very bad drawings, very bad perspectives, and incorrect proportions. 
Paul Veronese's dogs do not resemble dogs. All the horses look like bladders on legs. One man had a right leg on the left side of his body. In the large picture where the emperor, Barbarossa maybe, is prostrate before the pope, there are three men in the foreground who look over 30 feet high, if one may judge by the size of a kneeling little boy in the center of the foreground. And according to the same scale, the pope is seven feet high. And the dodge is a shriveled dwarf of four feet. The artist said, Yes, the old masters often drew badly. They did not care much for truth and exactness in minor details. But after all, in spite of bad drawing and bad perspective and bad proportion, and a choice of subjects which no longer appeal to people as strongly as they did 300 years ago, there is something about those pictures which is divine, something which is above and beyond the art of any epoch since, a something which would be the despair of artists, but that they never hope to expect or attain it, and therefore do not worry about it. That is what he said. And he said what he believed, and not only believed it, but he felt it. Reasoning, especially reasoning without technical knowledge, must be put aside in cases of this kind. It cannot assist the inquirer. It will lead him in the most logical progression to what, in the eyes of the artists, would be the most illogical conclusion. Thus, bad drawing, bad proportion, bad perspective, indifference to truthful detail, color which gets its merit from time and not from the artist, these things constitute the old master. So in conclusion, the old master was a bad painter. The old master was not an old master at all, but an old apprentice. Your friend the artist will grant your premises, but deny your conclusion. He will maintain that notwithstanding this formidable list of confessed defects, there is still something that is divine and unapproachable about the old master, and that there is no arguing the fact away by any system of reasoning whatsoever. I can believe that. There are women who have an indefinable charm in their faces which make them beautiful to their intimates, but a cold stranger who tried to reason the matter out and find this beauty would fail. He would say of one of these women, this chin is too short, or this nose is too long, or this forehead too high, hair too red, complexion too pallid. The perspective of the entire composition is incorrect. And you could conclude the woman is not beautiful. But her nearest friend might say, and say truly, your premises are right, your logic is faultless, but your conclusion is wrong. She is an old master. She is beautiful, but only to such as know her. It is a beauty which cannot be formulated, but it is there just the same. I found more pleasure in contemplating the old masters this time than when I was in Europe in former years, but still it is a calm pleasure. There was nothing overheated about it. When I was in Venice before, I think I found no picture which stirred me much. But this time there were two which enticed me to the Dodge's palace day after day and kept me there for hours at a time. One of these was Tintoretto's three-acre picture of the great council chamber. When I saw it twelve years ago, I was not strongly attracted to it. The guide told me it was an insurrection in heaven, but this was an error. The movement of this great work is very fine. There are ten thousand figures, and they are all doing something. 
there is a wonderful goal to the whole composition. Some of the figures are driving headlong downward with clasped hands. Others are swimming through the cloud shoals, some on their faces, some on their backs. Great processions of bishops, martyrs, and angels are pouring swiftly centerward from various outlying directions. Everywhere is enthusiastic joy. There is rushing movement everywhere. There are fifteen or twenty figures scattered here and there. They are all holding books, but they cannot keep their attention on their reading. They offer the books to others, but no one wishes to read. The Lion of St. Mark is there with his book. He and the lion are looking each other earnestly in the face, disputing about the way to spell a word. The lion looks up in rapt admiration while St. Mark spells it out. This is wonderfully interpreted by the artist. It is the master stroke of this incomparable painting. I visited the place daily and never grew tired of looking at that grand picture. As I have intimated, the movement is almost unimaginably vigorous. The figures are singing, hosannaing, and many are blowing trumpets. So vividly is noise suggested that spectators who become absorbed in the picture almost always fall to shouting comments to each other, making ear trumpets of their curved hands, fearing they may not otherwise be heard. One often sees a tourist, with the eloquent tears pouring down his cheek, funnel his hands in his wife's ear and hears him roar through them, Oh, to be there and at rest! None but the supremely great in art can produce effects like these with the silent brush. Twelve years ago I could not have appreciated this picture. One year ago I probably could not have appreciated it. My study of art in Heidelberg has been a noble education to me. All that I am today in art I owe to that. The other great work which fascinated me was Bassano's Immortal Hair Trunk. This is in the chamber of the Council of Ten. It is one of three forty-foot pictures which decorates the walls of the room. The composition of this picture is beyond praise. The hair trunk is not hurled at the stranger's head, so to speak, as the chief feature of an immortal work so often is. No, it is carefully guarded from prominence. It is subordinated, restrained and most deftly and cleverly held in reserve. It is cautiously and ingeniously led up to by the master, and consequently, when the spectator reaches it at last, he is taken unaware, he is unprepared, and it bursts upon him with a stupefying surprise. One is lost in wonder at all the thought and care which this elaborate planning must have cost, the general place in the picture could never suggest that there was a hair trunk in it. The hair trunk is not mentioned in the title, which is Pope Alexander III and the Dodge Ziani, the conqueror of the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. You see, the title is actually utilized to help divert attention from the trunk. Thus, as I say, nothing suggests the presence of the trunk by any hint, yet everything, studiedly, leads up to it, step by step. Let us examine this and observe the exquisitely artful artlessness of the plan. At the extreme left of the picture are a couple of women, one of them with a child looking over her shoulder and a wounded man sitting with a bandaged head on the ground. These people seem needless, but no, they are there for a purpose. 
One cannot look at them without seeing the gorgeous procession of grandees, bishops, halberdiers, and banner-bearers which is passing along behind them. One cannot see the procession without feeling the curiosity to follow it and learn whither it is going. It leads him to the Pope in the center of the picture, who is talking with a bonnetless doge, talking tranquilly, too, although within twelve feet of them a man is beating a drum, and not far from the drummer two people are blowing horns, and many horsemen are plunging and riding about, and indeed twenty-two feet of this great work is all a deep and happy holiday serenity and Sunday school procession. Then we come suddenly upon eleven and one-half feet of turmoil and racket and insubordination. This latter state of things is not an accident. It has a purpose. But for it, one would linger upon the Pope and the Doge, thinking them to be the motive and supreme feature of the picture, whereas one is drawn along almost unconsciously to see what the trouble is about. Now at the very end of this riot, within four feet of the end of the picture, and full thirty-six feet from the beginning, the hair trunk bursts with electrifying suddenness upon the spectator. In all its matchless perfection, and the great master's triumph is sweeping and complete. From that moment, no other thing in those forty feet of canvas has any charm. One sees the hair trunk and the hair trunk only, and to see it is to worship it. Bassano even placed objects in the immediate vicinity of the supreme feature, whose pretended purpose was to divert attention from it yet a little longer, and thus delay and augment the surprise. For instance, to the right of it, he placed a stooping man with a cap so red it is sure to hold the eye for a moment, and to the left, some six feet away, he placed a red-coated man on an inflated horse, and that coat plucks your eye to that locality the next moment. Then, between the trunk and the red horseman, he has intruded a man, naked to the waist, who is carrying a fancy flour sack in the middle of his back instead of his shoulder. This admirable feat interests you, of course, keeps you at bay a little longer, like a sock or a jacket thrown to the pursuing wolf. But at last, in spite of all the distractions and detentions, the eye of even the most dull and heedless spectator is sure to fall upon the world's masterpiece. And in that moment, he totters to his chair or leans upon his guide for support. Descriptions of such a work as this must necessarily be imperfect, yet they are of value. The top of the trunk is arched. The arch is a perfect half-circle in the Roman style of architecture, for in the then rapid decadence of Greek art, the rising influence of Rome was already beginning to be felt in the art of the Republic. The trunk is bound or bordered with leather all around where the lid joins the main body. Many critics consider this leather too cold in tone, but I consider this its highest merit, since it was evidently made so to emphasize, by contrast, the impassioned fervor of a hasp. The highlights in this part of the work are cleverly managed, and the motif is admirably subordinated to the ground tints and the technique is very fine. The brass nail heads are in the purest style of the early Renaissance. 
The strokes here firm and bold. Every nail head is a portrait. The handle on the end of the trunk has evidently been retouched, I think with a piece of chalk, but one can see the inspiration of the old master in the tranquil, almost too tranquil hang of it. The hair of this trunk is real hair, so to speak, white in patches, brown in patches. The details are finely worked out. The repose proper to hair in a recumbent and inactive attitude is charmingly expressed. There is a feeling about this part of the work which lifts it to the highest altitudes of art. The sense of sordid realism vanishes away. One recognizes that there is a soul here. View this trunk as you will. It is a gem, a marvel, a miracle. Some of the effects are very daring, approaching even to the boldest flights of the Rococo, the Sirocco, and the Byzantine schools. Yet the master's hand never falters. It moves on, calm, majestic, confident. And with that art which conceals art, it finally casts over the tout ensemble by mysterious methods of its own, a subtle something which refines, subdues, etherealizes the arid components and endures them with the deep charm and gracious witchery of poesy. Among the art treasures of Europe, there are pictures which approach the hair trunk. There are two which may be said to equal it, possibly, but there is none that surpasses it. So perfect is the hair trunk, it moves even people who ordinarily have no feeling for art. What an eerie baggage master saw it two years ago, he could hardly keep from checking it. And once, when a customs inspector was brought into its presence, he gazed upon it in silent rapture for some moments, then slowly and unconsciously placed one hand behind him with the palm uppermost and got out his chalk with the other. These facts speak for themselves. <laughs>